1: Well, good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And what could be the next big thing that changes everything, like your smartphone did 15 years ago? Well, there might be an answer. It's the rise of artificial intelligence. Now, you may have heard of ChatGBT. You might have thought it was a typo when you actually saw it on your screen, but it's not. It's called ChatGBT, but the question is, what exactly is it? Well, I wasn't sure how to explain it myself, so you know what? I went right to the source. ChatGBT, briefly describe yourself for a TV audience. Here's what they came up with. Quote, ChatGBT is a sophisticated computer program that uses artificial intelligence to understand and generate human-like language. It can answer questions, write stories, and even engage in conversation. It's been trained on a massive amount of text data, so it's able to understand and respond to a wide range of topics and questions. It's like having a very knowledgeable and well-spoken personal assistant available 24-7 to help with anything you need. Did you get know all that? That's according to ChatGBT. And today we're going to talk all about artificial intelligence. The good, the bad, the pretty cool. And what it could actually mean in your future. Plus... Is there anybody out there who doesn't have any classified documents lying around? I mean, I joke about the number of glass houses that are popping up in Washington, D.C., but you've really got to wonder what's going on when the president of the United States and the former president of the United States and his former vice president of the United States have all been found to have classified documents in places where they should not. The question really is what happens now? There's an awful lot going on tonight, but I want to get right to artificial intelligence and what it could mean for our future. And joining me now, Axios tech reporter Ashley Gold, also former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang, founder of the Forward Party. I'm glad that you're both here tonight and just thinking about this. And I'm actually I'm being honest. I actually when I first saw it was like, oh, I think I might be typing this in wrong. What's happening? What's going on here? Chat GBT, it says it can do a whole lot. It described itself just now, but the possibilities really are really expansive here.
2: Talk to me about those possibilities and what it could really do. So there's opportunities here in academia, for school, for workers, for writers, for people doing research, for people trying to gather data, for companies to become more efficient. It really is endless what this prompt can do. You know,
1: and again, it's chat GPT, everyone. The diction's important here. I'll tell you, I didn't know what I was talking about at one, thinking the chat GBT, chat GPT. Let me go to you here, Andrew, on this. It's really important because I wonder, I mean, what what would people, when you're thinking about how this all works and um, the ideas of what this could mean for so many people, I, I do wonder for you, what would you tell people that they need to know about AI.
3: Well, you're talking about a bot that can produce high school, even college level essays in the blink of an eye. It will transform the way a lot of our schools function and operate. Colleges already are dealing with students who are turning in AI generated essays. But there are two million Americans right now who work in call centers and make about seventeen dollars an hour. This technology will be able to replace them in very, very short order. Someone described ChatGPT as the Model T of AI, where it's the first generally useful uh, application, but you're going to go from a Model T to a Lamborghini uh, in a matter of months or weeks instead of years. So uh, I I think people should really be digging into what this is going to mean for schools, the workforce, and, and even our democracy.
1: You know what? I had to do a little research and ask what ChatGPT might think Andrew Yang might say in reaction to that very question. So I'm going to tell the audience what ChatGPT said you would answer that question, how they said it. It says, yeah, I mean, it's technology after all. As Andrew Yang, it says, I would stress the importance of understanding the potential impact of artificial intelligence on the job market. Uh Uh-huh. And the need to prepare for this this displacement of certain jobs by automation. I would also highlight the importance of investing in training and education programs to help people acquire the skills necessary to thrive in the future economy. Additionally, I would emphasize the importance of having a thoughtful and proactive approach to the ethical and societal implications of AI. What do you think of them getting inside your head?
3: You know, I, I think it's pretty good. I'd say it's a high school or college level Andrew Yang answer. Uh, the, the fact is though, uh, government funded retraining programs tend to have very, very low reported success rates. It's more of a talking point than a real policy. Uh, this stuff is speeding up. It's operating much, much more quickly than most people can really even conceive of. Uh, and And I badly wish that our leaders were reckoning with what this is going to mean. I hope that ChatGPT wakes up the American people to the fact that AI is no longer science fiction. It's here and now.
1: And you know who's here, Ashley, as well. I want to ask you about this because how is it working? I mean, how is, how is this particular AI getting the information? Is it synthesizing from the internet exclusively? Is it in, in present day time? Is it constantly reflective? Is it able to hypothesize? How does it actually work?
2: No. So it's not quite that sophisticated. It can't hypothesize. It can't gather data from the internet in real time. And actually, we just reported yesterday in Axios that the data set that it pulls from actually ended in 2021. So this is not real time web page data it's pulling from. So it is quite limited in that way. It is trained on a certain number of websites, and it sort of ends there. That doesn't mean it can't get more sophisticated in the future, but that's what we're dealing with right now. Should there be,
1: and are there concerns right now about the idea that this could replace, I mean, even, you know, a skilled worker, an unskilled worker, as they say, is there a concern
2: about this having an impact negatively? Absolutely, there's a concern. Uh, what we've been talking about in my newsroom is that There's a real fear this could replace creative jobs, like creating graphics, creating illustrations for a website or for a company, or even generating articles. We just saw last week CNET announced it wasn't going to have AI-generated articles anymore because many of them had errors. This is the problem with the generative text. It puts forth very readable, casual, sort of clear stories and text, but that doesn't mean it's all true. It's not fact-checking this stuff in real time.
1: It's interesting because, Andrew, we asked um, the technology to be able to write, on your notion of uh, what's creative, to write a short scene from a screenplay about scientists discovering a new airborne pathogen that could cause a global pandemic. That was essentially the instruction. Look what it turned out and had. It really provided then a screenplay on that particular short scene, the fade in, the research lab, et cetera, um, what you're actually looking at. It's a pretty cool thing that we're seeing a team of scientists in the lab coats and what they're doing and giving that, really setting the scene, um, Sophia Petrillo style of picture it, science lab, modern day, whatever that might be, although not in Sicily. And you've got the, all the dialogue actually happening right there. And so you have the sort of wonder of being able to say, hey, that's really cool. This can really work this way. But are there some harmful aspects to this, especially on the point that Ashley raised of, say it's not in the creative space of a screenplay. Say it's instead an expectation that it's providing truthful, factual information in real time. If it's not fact-checking or maybe appreciating even the human nuance of certain, I don't know, sarcasm or satire or um, misinformation, can it be trusted?
3: Well, to Ashley's point, AI can generate artistic creations like paintings, like pieces of music. Uh, And 44% of American jobs are considered either repetitive cognitive or repetitive manual. So this technology is is going to replace a lot of white-collar jobs. Uh, people think about automation as a blue-collar phenomenon. We blasted away 4 million manufacturing jobs in this country, which, by the way, in my view, led to uh, Trumpism and, and the depletion of opportunities in the Midwest and the South. And now it's coming for white-collar jobs. I mean, we need to to wake up. I'm so glad you're covering this story in the way that you are, Laura, because when I was running for president on this, a lot of people looked up and said, hey, it's X years away. I mean, it's 2023, uh, and it's here with us. You can go to ChatGPT and use it for yourself.
1: It is true, and thank you for um, for that and thinking about the way in which— you know, what we think is really on the horizon suddenly becomes right in front of us. And, I, and on that point, I want to turn to how this might be used in sort of the knowledge space, so to speak, and a sign of just how advanced artificial intelligence has actually become. Chat GPT actually passed the MBA exam given by a Wharton professor. And guess what? That professor joins me now. He's Christian Terwish from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor, I'm very glad you're here right now, because we're thinking about the ways in which this could be used and how it might be able to um, be thought of, not just an automation of blue-collar workers, but the idea of a category known as sort of the the knowledge workers or the knowledge-based employment. Talk to me about what happened when the CHAT GPT took an MBA exam at Wharton, no less.
4: Well, first of all, thanks for being on, having me on the show, Laura. Uh, so over the holidays, I ran these experiments. My kids were super interested in AI. One was playing around with MidJourney and other uh, image generation technologies. The other one was playing with ChatGPT. And so the question came up like, Dad, can this thing uh, pass your exam at Warden? And so what we did is we fed it five of my exam questions. And uh, it did super well. It, It did amazingly well on three out of the five questions. For two of the five questions, it needed a human hint. For one of them, it was still struggling. But I was just in awe in terms of the quality of the answer, the writing. There was some humor in it. It was transparent. And again, absolutely cool stuff.
1: What do you mean by it needed a human hint? Is it to sort of appreciate a nuance of a statement or it needed more data in some kind? What did that feel like?
4: Yeah, so really interesting. So on the tougher questions, it struggled. But then I gave it a hint. I said, like, remember this and this and use this tool. And it actually picked up the hint, just like a a student who is was struggling in class would. It improved the answer. And in one case, got the answer right after two hints. And the other one, you have to know, Laura, it's really bad with math. There's a real irony to that in the sense that <laughs> it's a computer, right? Uh, but it struggles with math. It's, it's, it's as human as you and I in the sense that, uh, again, it has humor, is great with words, but for whatever reason, it's struggling with math, which it really has to do with the underlying technology that is in the box.
1: That is fascinating to think about, that it has an Achilles heel, perhaps just like a human intellect as well. But, you know, I'm sure a lot of people in academia are looking at this, not just from the idea of the fascination, but there is the honor code violation prospects that could happen all across the country. And I, um, in that, to that vein, we entered in and asked, write the first paragraph of a college essay application for a student applying to Princeton. It actually wrote it, and it began talking about it It's on the cusp of adulthood and, and contemplate my future. I can't help but reflect on the experience and opportunities that have shaped me um, and, and the person, person I am today. Now, truth be told, Professor, this looks a lot like my own personal essay for Princeton University. We did not have <laughs> chat P- GPT, so it was legit back then. Thank you very much. However, this is a real risk for many people to think of, well, this is a sophisticated version of Cliff's Notes, right? This is the open book exam. you got technology. You can ask people, is that a concern that this will be used in a nefarious way to cheat the system?
4: Absolutely. And I think any institution from K-12 to the business schools or professional schools like medical schools and law schools are, are concerned about this at the moment. Uh, so I think... Uh, One thing is we have to ban it in certain cases when we are certifying a skill. uh, You don't want your doctor to have only passed the test with the help of an AI bot. Uh, On the other hand, I think it also opens up amazing opportunities for us to have our students basically get new learning experiences to transform the classrooms, to engage our students more. And so I I think the the cheating question is a real one. Absolutely, it needs to be banned under certain circumstances. But I really would want us to think bigger than that. If at the end of the day, all we did is end up in a place where we were last year. We have, t- we have lost, or so we have not taken advantage of a huge opportunity.
1: Well, you know... Just thinking about the idea of what could happen. Just, if we only confined ourselves to the risk of progress, we probably wouldn't take any steps in any direction. Thank you, Professor. Thank you so much. And, and before we go, I, I want to break. I just want to say to Andrew, if we can bring him back into the conversation. Andrew, um, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out, you know, earlier tonight, I was watching my colleague and friend, Erin Burnett, and your wife was actually on the program. And she was speaking in her reaction to the conviction of her OBGYN who victimized her and many others in sexual assault and beyond. And I just wanted to say that I really commend her bravery. I commended it when she spoke up in the first instance and the impact that she has had even now. So I hope that you know we're all thinking of your family.
3: Well, thank you, Laura. I'm so proud of Evelyn uh, and so glad for the hundreds of women who saw justice served today with a conviction of a serial predator in the form of, of Dr. Haddon. And, and I, I also want to extend our gratitude uh, to Dana Bash and Aaron Burnett and the team at CNN who helped bring this story to light in a really, really uh, sensitive way uh, that, that uh, helped my, my family uh, get through a very difficult time. So thank you all.
1: Your family and so many others. I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, and our best to everyone. We'll be right back. Let's just imagine together, if we win, the uh, or if we will, how many former office holders are digging through their files right now, as we speak. I mean, looking for any classified documents where they're not supposed to be. The latest discovery, about a dozen documents marked as classified at former Vice President Mike Pence's Indiana home. That, after more than 100 classified documents were found at former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago Beach Club and the drip, drip, drip of documents found at President Biden's one-time Washington office and at his home in Wilmington. Here to talk about all this, CNN Senior Political Commentator and former Congressman Adam Kinzinger. I'm glad you're here, Congressman. You know, there are a lot of people living in glass houses tonight in Washington, D.C. and outside of the Beltway who are wondering, is my previous statement going to age well? In fact, if you listen to this, you had the former vice president um, on ABC and also CBS talking about classified documents. Listen to what he had to say.
0: Let me ask you, as we sit here in your home office in Indiana, did you take any classified documents with you from the White House? Uh, I, I did not.
5: Our staff reviewed all of the materials in our office and in our residence to ensure that uh, there were no classified uh, materials that that left uh, the White House or remained in our possession and I Uh, I I remain confident that that was done in a thorough and careful way. Um, Clearly, in the waning days of the Trump-Pence administration, that process was not properly executed by staff around the president of the United States.
1: What's your reaction to the turn of events now?
6: Well, first off, he gets credit for, I guess, deciding to do a search coming forward with the classified documents. And so it's become obvious that there's a problem with vice presidents and presidents somehow being able to take this stuff with them. I want to say a quick aside in the Senate and the House. I don't see how it would actually be possible at all for a senator or a House member to do this because everything is very tightly controlled. If you look at classified documents, for instance, they come in a folder. You have people watching to make sure that, you know, if you take notes, that they're acceptable notes. Even usually you can't take those with you and that you return those documents. But evidently for a president and a vice president, it's a little more loose. And that's somewhat understandable because I'm sure the entire White House or at least the residents of the White House is a skiff or a protected area where you can look at these documents. But we have a problem here. And I think uh, we need to certainly get our hands around this.
1: I mean, it's true, thinking about, and again, obviously we're talking about a modern presidency and, and, the, and thinking about where and how these documents are tracked and where they ought to be. But let's just say, I mean, we see this problem now happening more often than anyone would like to admit, perhaps, our national security implications. Obviously, top of mind, are talking about classified documents. But we don't yet know what these documents are. We don't know what they are, really. We're talking about the documents found at Mar-a-Lago, let alone in Wilmington or at the the Biden Penn Center or what's happening in Indiana. Are we at a disadvantage being able to really assess what's happened here unless we know what's in those documents? Which, by the way, we might never know because they're classified and they have designations Mm -hmm. like that.
6: Yeah, so look, I think generally anything that's marked secret or top secret, you can assume if that gets out, that creates damage. We do have a problem, I think, with overclassification, to an extent, but I think specific documents. So I don't know, of course, what was gotten in in all of these gentlemen's residents, but if something that you look at may not be harmful, particularly just in what you read, I've read some top secret stuff that quite honestly is stuff you can find in the news, but the thing that is classified and the reason it's classified is because it can imply sources and methods to get that information, which our adversaries, if they put this together, they can maybe figure out who you know, the mole is or anything else. And so, yeah, I mean, if if you look at what's going on, I I don't think we'll ever necessarily, we may know the subjects, but we're not going to know what's in those documents. Uh, But it it would create real harm if that got out. And again, I think with somebody like a Mike Pence, you can look and say he gets credit for proactively searching, but uh, we've got a real problem here.
1: I mean, he's getting a lot more than just credit, frankly, these days. And there are a lot of comparisons and parallels being drawn and contrasts being drawn, even when there aren't, obvious contrast to draw. For example, you're we talking about um, CNN obtained a letter sent on behalf of Pence to the archives saying that Pence was unaware of the documents. And it, it really kind of followed a great deal, what we saw already from the Biden team, where lawyers were looking at documents at a home, looking through boxes, saw a classification designation, closed it, alerted the archives, then DOJ was, was, talked, to, it was talked to, and then everything proceeds from then. And yet, You have um, the House Oversight Chairman, James Comer, who is drawing a distinction. I want to just, here's what he has to say. He said, former Vice President Mike Pence reached out today about classified documents found at his home in Indiana. He has agreed to fully cooperate with congressional oversight. And any questions we have about the matter, former Vice President Pence's transparency stands in stark contrast to Biden White House staff, will continue to withhold information from Congress and the American people. Is there truly a distinction between how the two have conducted themselves, save the press briefings, but truly the reaction to the presence of documents?
6: Yeah, well, this is what bothers me about politics, honestly, is that people will take a position, not based on what's right, not based on merits, but based on whose team. Um, Every member of Congress, left or right, frankly, Republican or Democrat, needs to be on the same standard when it comes to Joe Biden and Mike Pence. More than likely, everything we're hearing is it was basically the same kind of way of going about it. It doesn't mean it was right. The difference is with Donald Trump, he was alerted to this and continued to resist turning these over. That is very different than being alerted to this and proactively getting these turned over. So there may be some some differences here, but again, I would encourage the media, I would encourage citizens, constituents, to look at your member of Congress and say, are you being consistent? We need to elect consistency. That's what we're missing in this country is a commitment to a standard of truth and consistency.
1: A really important point, and just for those out there wondering, Clinton, Bush, Obama, all they're up to saying they turned over classified documents. They're reading the writing on the wall. They don't want to live in a glass house either. We'll see. What else comes of all of this? Thank you for being here tonight.
6: You bet.
1: Well, in another matter, decisions on charges, well, appear to be imminent. That's the word that was chosen and spoken to a court of law today. And multiple people could be facing those imminent charges. We'll tell you what Fulton County's DA is saying about her investigation into Trump and others' attempts to overturn the election. Next. Fulton County Georgia District Attorney Fannie Willis says her decision is, quote, imminent, imminent on possible charges against former President Trump and others for efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. Final report is now complete from the special grand jury that was impaneled in this very matter. And the D.A. is suggesting they've recommended multiple indictments. But she argued in court today that that report should not be made public, at least for now. What the state does not want to see happen, and don't think that there's any way that the court would be able to guarantee, is that if that report was released, there somehow could be arguments made that it impacts the right for later individuals,
7: multiple, to get a fair trial, to have a fair hearing, to be able to be tried in this jurisdiction. The list can go on and on.
1: I know CNN is actually part of a group of media organizations asking for that report to be made public. Joining me now, CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams, CNN political commentator Karen Finney, who, by the way, did work on the 2020 election in Georgia, and National Review senior editor Ramesh Panuru is joining us as well. I want to dig right in because we begin with you for a second, Elliot, as our resident lawyer for a moment on this conversation. Is the DA in Fulton County right to say, look, This report ought not to be made public as of yet. Keep in mind, this special grand jury is not a traditional grand jury that can return indictments quite yet, right?
8: Right. Now, the question is, what do you mean by right? Is she right as a member of, a, of the public, where we you know have some entitlement as a member of the public to know what law enforcement and others are doing, or as a prosecutor who doesn't want her case screwed up. And as a prosecutor, absolutely, you would never want facts of your investigation getting out for a couple of reasons. One, you don't want to taint the jury pool. You don't want people reading about and starting to mull over evidence if they might be picked for a jury at some point. So that have about, that
1: argument made against have them. Have an right? argument made
8: against them. All the, all the above, one. And two, and then the, the big thing is you don't want to out innocent people who might be named but not charged with crimes. Even former presidents of the United States who may not be popular in a jurisdiction are entitled to the presumption of innocence. You don't want to report out there if you're a prosecutor dragging them through the mud. So for lots of reasons, as a prosecutor, the safe move, even not even redacted, you don't want that anywhere near the public.
1: And, I, I want to respond, Karen, but let's look at the list of people. I mean, more than, what, 75 people were interviewed by this grand jury in Georgia. Look at the list of people who we know of. I mean, this is You know, quite a list, very um, people who have some overlap, by the way, with the January 6th committee, Cassie Hutchinson, for example, others who are former Trump attorneys like Jenna Ellis. You've got the secretary of state in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, a senator, Lindsey Graham, Governor Brian Kemp, Giuliani, just to name a few people. What is your reaction to the fact that we're not going to yet know? the basis of this report, what's in it, knowing that these are some of the key figures who even did testify.
9: We don't need to know right now. I think it is more important to protect the case for, for many reasons, not the least of which the unprecedented nature of what this case is about. We're talking about a sitting president of the United States of America trying to thwart the results of a legal fair election. So it is incumbent that every single step of the way, and I think this attorney, she knows this, Every she has to come correct and have it right and can't have any pieces hanging out there. Particularly, the last thing I would say is, look at what Trump did with regard to the Mar-a-Lago documents. He's the one who leaked to the public that that was happening. Normally, we wouldn't have known about that because the DOJ would protect that investigation. So the likelihood it's a tactic we know he's used before. It's a tactic others have used. So we wouldn't want anyone to all the things that Elliot just said to use any information or we don't need to have weeks of speculation about what could be the charges. What does this, that or the other mean? Let's let it, the process play itself out. Let's see. And then let, let's see the documents after the charges have been rendered.
1: And yet she did say in plural, maybe others who could be charged and um, one group that might not want that to have that, you know, prudence um, that Karen's speaking about to let Tia, the process unfold is the person who at the end of a process might actually be implicated and indicted. How do you think this is playing politically, given, of course, this was the case, this is the county, this is the instance where many believed Trump and his allies might be the most vulnerable if there is any legal exposure, which obviously translates politically.
10: Yeah, I think that it doesn't have a political impact until you actually have the indictments uh, and they're public. And then, you know, obviously it depends on what facts we're talking about, what kinds of charges we're actually talking about. Uh, I think that, um, you know, that sort of highlights the difficulty that the judge has here, but is that... There are, there are multiple public interests involved here and their intention with one another. There's a public interest in knowing as much as possible. There's a public interest in justice being done and the integrity of the criminal justice system being protected. And that's gonna, you know, that's the, it, it makes sense that the press, including CNN, is asking for immediate disclosure of everything now. That's sort of, that's what the press, that's what we do in the press, but it's not the only consideration in front of a judge.
1: I think we were just called nosy. I don't know. Fine. <laughs> I'll deal with it. It's okay. <laughs> I, 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 I agree. I had to think about it. But also, Georgia, Karen. Yeah. Is, Georgia is is unique in a number of facets, especially because it is the, the site where conversations around the so-called big lie were on full display with Brad Raffensperger and the pressure campaign. We heard this infamous telephone call of finding a certain number of votes. Yep. But it's also the state that seemed to have been as resistant to the big lie being successful not in legislation. They certainly did legislate things um, with a, a solution in search of a problem. But is is Georgia politically unique in the way that this is being thought of? No.
9: I, what I would say is that Raffensperger and Kemp did a good job of not letting the big lie or their association with Trump be used against them the way we saw in other states and other uh, parts of the country. Uh, and they got, I think, a little more credit than they should have, frankly, uh, around, yes, it's great that they actually did their jobs in 2020 and didn't, I think we have to remember that, they did what they were supposed to do by saying, no, we're not just going to go find you 11,000-some votes.
1: You mean the bar has been set too low?
9: Yeah, my, my mother used to say, you don't get credit for doing what you're supposed to. Mm. But I in agree. the world-
1: Sadly, though, I'm not going to spare your mother because she's right. I'm on her side. But the idea, and all mothers are, I'm on their side. But the idea of, you know, in a world where we have become accustomed to people not doing the right thing or not doing or being pressured in some way, you know, you do have heroes among the most basic moments. But we have more to talk about, everyone, on this point and more. Everyone, stay with us. Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, seeming to propose what would be, frankly, a major change in death penalty trials. Whatever side you might be on on the issue of the death penalty, you're going to want to hear this conversation and it's next. The Florida governor Ron DeSantis was at a sheriff's event just yesterday using the life sentence of the Parkland shooter to suggest that Florida should change the requirement that juries have to be unanimous when trying to seek the death penalty.
11: It's one thing to say, yeah, I mean, obviously, a majority of the jury has to, maybe a supermajority, but to have one person be able to veto that, and the thing about it is, is there are certain crimes where any punishment other than that just doesn't fit the crime. Fine, have a supermajority. But you can't just say of one person. So maybe eight out of twelve have to agree, or or something. uh, But we can't be in a situation where one person can can just derail this.
1: Back with me now, Elliot Williams, Karen Finney, and Ramesh Panuru. I mean, the idea of one person being able to derail it. You know, for most Americans, they are accustomed to the notion that you must have a unanimous jury to convict, or you have the you know famous. Norman Rockwell painting of the holdout, woman at the end with her arms crossed, at the end of the day, when everyone's pleading with her to change her mind. And some would look at the idea of having that jury system as what is expected in our system of justice, that one person very well could have that opinion. What do you make of the governor' statement using, for example, Parkland, uh, obviously very, very difficult and tragic scenario and led to the death of... Too many, far too many. Even one would have been too many. Um, High school students and teachers at the school at Doneman Douglas High, what do you make of this statement of him?
10: Right. Although uh, reportedly there were three jurors in that case who did not want to impose the death penalty. I think that there's pretty widespread sentiment, particularly in Florida, in favor of the death penalty in that case. Um, And so I I wouldn't be surprised if Governor DeSantis found that he had a lot of support on this. It's also worth noting for context that this would be a step back toward the pre-2016 status quo in Florida where simple majorities could impose the death penalty. Now, I myself... I'm against the death penalty. I think that it should be legislatively abolished throughout the United States. But, uh, you know, I'm distinctly in the minority of American opinion on that subject. Uh, And I think people might underestimate the political appeal of this. And frankly, it's not crazy to think that a supermajority ought to be sufficient in these cases.
1: Well, let's see if you really are the minority. I happen to also be opposed to death penalty and as a prosecutor, intentionally did not prosecute in jurisdiction that had that as an available penalty. But the Gallup poll most recently in November of 2022, 55% of people support the death penalty for convicted murderers. Then there was a poll as um, to the deterrent aspect of it. And the Pew Research Center survey from April of 2021 said that the death asked, does the death penalty deter criminals? 63% said, no, it does not. And I think actually also um, the idea, is there a risk that innocent people might be executed? Here's what the Pew Research Center found. They saw is some risk, 78 percent, some risk that an innocent person could be executed. And by the way, not for nothing, the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, in his confirmation hearing, remember, this is somebody who was the prosecutor in the Oklahoma City bombings that I believe led to the death penalty as well being an available um, uh, sentence. He said this at his own hearing.
5: I uh, the death penalty at that time for Mr. McVeigh in, in, in that individual case. I don't have uh, any regret, um, but I have developed uh, concerns about the death penalty in the 20 some years since then. Um, And I and I and and the sources of my concern are uh, issues of exonerations of people who have been convicted of uh, sort of arbitrariness and randomness of its application because of how seldom it's applied and because of its disparate impact on uh, black Americans and uh, members of other communities of color.
1: Now, obviously, that led in part to his conversation about there being a moratorium on the death penalty in the federal executions. What is your take yeah. on this idea of the governor talking about, and again, the Parkland shooter, obviously, this is, a, this is the kind of case where people were very vehemently yeah. invested in ensuring that he was brought to justice. And then a fork in the road became what that would mean at sentencing. Sure.
8: And I have a lot of thoughts on this because uh, like the attorney general, I too have prosecuted a capital prosecution. Um, and like the attorney general also, after you know, look, we got to have a moratorium at the federal level. States ought to just legislate it out because of the profound risk of an error. And I can walk through all of the steps in the process where this is an incredibly problematic way of administering justice. With respect to Parkland and with respect to the general argument that, well, the victims deserve this form of justice. And, there's, and look, I've dealt with crime victims before. I know you have as well and uh, tried to protect their rights to, to the greatest extent possible. If you were to ask people, would you be OK with an innocent person dying to secure justice in this case? I think most people would say, well, well, you know, look, I want justice. But, you know, you want to kill Ramesh um, because of the fact that, you know, would that provide justice? I don't, I don't like where this is. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I, think, I know, I know. I, you were the first person I, I was looking yeah, okay. for. Ramesh. I'm sorry. But, but, think, but yeah. But sorry, to your point,
9: ahead. I think what's important here is to remember, Florida, as, as of 2021, has the most number of exonerated individuals yeah. On from death row, and that's been 30 individuals, a majority, three-fourths, black and brown. So this also connects to criminal justice reform and the application of justice. That is not something that I think that Ron DeSantis is thinking about. This felt a lot more like a comment from a man who is running for president yes. in a state where he says woke goes to die and is more thinking about you know, sort of toughness, law and order and not this more nuanced conversation. And I'll just say it in case, any, you know, so I don't get killed on Twitter, which is obviously Parkland was horrendous. Yeah, no, Obviously, no, got they right, 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 got the right, right, right person. Obviously, it is, you know, your feelings about that. You have to still balance. What does justice mean in this country? And we know it's not applied evenly. Well, and I mean, I mean, a
8: part- I mean, one more really quick point. Think about the, the countries around the world. All of our peers have abolished their death penalty. When we think of who our allies and peers that we sort of regard as, as sort of intellectual um, allies on this. China, Saudi Arabia, up Singapore. If that's the company we want to be in uh, for eternity, then fine, let's have it and, and, and make that choice. But there's a shrinking number of American allies that really
10: continue to administer of course, a lot this. Of those, a lot of those countries did it judicially, and our federal judiciary started down that road and then pulled yeah. back.
1: And to be clear, everyone, Governor DeSantis was talking about the number of jurors necessary to actually have this as a sentence, um, not the more broad question about whether the death penalty in and of itself should be available. Tens of thousands of people across Texas are without power tonight. We'll show you the damage a tornado outbreak has caused so far. Stay with us. A possible tornado touching down tonight in Beauregard Parish in Louisiana on the southwestern border with Texas. The sheriff's office investigating reports of downed power lines and damaged homes. It's one of 14 tornado reports in that region just tonight alone. The same powerful storm leaving a path of destruction this afternoon in Paradise, Texas, southeast of Houston. The National Weather Service reporting that a tornado did, in fact, touch down there. The police chief describing the damage to commercial and residential structures as catastrophic and the worst he's seen in 25 years. At least one person has been reported injured and first responders are checking on stranded motorists. A little bit east, the downtown of Deer Park, Texas, also getting slammed by the powerful storm which brought torrential rains and heavy winds that knocked down power lines. Tens of thousands of of customers across Southeast. Texas are now without power tonight. And next, more on the 29-year-old man allegedly beaten by Memphis police after being stopped for reckless driving. He died three days later. Five officers have now been fired. Two firemen also fired. I will speak with the Memphis DA after this. This just in to CNN at this very hour. New and disturbing details on the death of Tyree Nichols, three days after a Memphis traffic stop. Lawyers for Nichols' family tell CNN preliminary results from an independent autopsy show the 29-year-old died from, quote, extensive bleeding caused by a severe beating. Family says this is consistent with what they saw on the video of his encounter with police. Nichols, beaten for three minutes. Just think about that. A boxing round, three minutes. Three minutes this man was allegedly beaten by five officers. Five black officers were fired even before the video of that arrest has even been publicly released. And two members of the Memphis Fire Department have also been fired in the wake of Nichols' death. I wanna bring in Steve Mulroy, the Shelby County District Attorney dealing with this very investigation down there in Memphis. Steve, it's good to see you this evening. There are a lot of questions being asked about what happened to Tyree Nichols and when the public might be able to see this video for themselves. Any idea when it will be released and what are the considerations to do so?
12: Right. Well, thank you for having me, Laura. Uh, A lot of the people's questions about what exactly happened will, of course, be answered once people see the video we expect that to happen this week or next week Um, we want to make sure that we get far enough along in our investigations that the investigation isn't compromised by premature release of the video and just to be very concrete about that if in a case like this or really any case laura if you are going to interview a suspect you don't want the suspect to be able to see the video and then tailor their statements to law enforcement based on what they've seen because now they know what you've got. And even non-suspect witnesses, uh, there's a risk that rather than telling law enforcement what they actually saw with their own AIs, they might have their memory colored by what they saw on the video. So in cases like this, we generally wanna get key witness interviews completed and we're doing that as fast as we can. And then I think the video will be released.
1: So has this video been seen individually by any of these five officers who were fired or the two firemen as well or their counsel or the police union?
12: Not to my knowledge, um, but we did uh, uh, we do know that the family of Tyrene Nichols and their counsel uh, was shown the video.
1: Will there be. The full video provided once the concerns you have raised have been resolved in terms, and I understand completely the idea of not wanting to fatally compromise the investigation and to provide at least the avenue for the pursuit of justice. Is the intention to to show the full footage? And is it coming from body cam footage? Is it coming from a police vehicle? Where is the footage coming from?
12: Well... It's already clear that there is some body cam footage. They were on-duty officers. Um, I believe that the city will show enough footage so that people will see the entirety of the incident uh, from the very beginning to the very end.
1: What does it tell you, and what should it tell the public, frankly, that you've got officers fired before this has even been released, before there's even even been an assessment of charges to be made? And I note that I believe Memphis did change its policy with regard to issues surrounding the use of force, the duty to render aid, the duty to intervene, adopted less than a month after George Floyd's death. Is this somehow telling about the failure to do all of these things by each of these officers?
12: Well, so the fact that they were terminated means that the city made an administrative decision that the officers did not follow protocol, did not follow the guidelines, and it was a serious breach of those guidelines. I uh, mean, you know, we have a relatively new police chief he's only been uh, in office for about a year and a half. There were some changes made in response to the George uh, Floyd incident, but you know, Laura, it takes a while to change a culture and you can't just uh, turn that on a dime. And so it may be that uh, there's more to be done And uh, I'm hopeful that uh, what silver lining there could be out of this tragic incident is it might open up a broader dialogue about police reforms.
1: You know, one of the dialogues that it's really um, opening even more is the idea that oftentimes when we're talking about excessive force cases and the killing of an armed black man or black or brown person, it is a conversation around race and the racial dynamic and white officers who are alleged to have behaved in this way to create those conversations. Here we've got five black officers. Um, I've often said in my prosecution experience in the past, the color blue can trump every other color. What is the community in Memphis and in Shelby County more broadly saying about the fact that the race of these officers is the same as the race of the victim Tyree Nichols. Is this a conversation that is stunning the people or is it par for the course, knowing that blue can trump black?
12: Well, certainly I think um, people who were discussing this case in Memphis and Shelby County have taken note uh, that the race of the officers involved and in the race of the uh, you know, Mr. Nichols is the same. Um, I think it might lead some to say, as I think the lawyer for Tyra Nichols' family has said, is that the really relevant consideration is the race of the citizen as opposed to the race of the police officer.
1: Do you expect charges in this case?
12: Well, so that's what I'm going to be deciding with my office uh, based on the facts and the circumstances. Um, I can't really say right now. I think it would be improper for me to say what I'm going to do or when we're going to do it. But I will tell you that we are expediting the considerations and expediting the investigation as much as possible. And um, it is possible that we may be able to make a determination around the same time frame in which we contemplate release of the video.
1: Has the Department of Justice or the FBI become involved? I know there are cases involved oftentimes where the Civil Rights Division is looking into whether the civil rights of the individual Victim have been violated. We saw that in the, in the case of, in my own home state of Minnesota, officers charged in the killing of George Floyd, also being brought up on civil rights violations. Has that coordination yeah. begun?
12: Yes. Yes, Laura, it has. Uh, the Department of Justice has already announced that they are getting involved. The FBI is uh, cooperating in the investigation with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, who I called in so that it would be a truly independent investigation, I'm in regular contact with the U.S. attorney here in Memphis, and we are collaborating on this. I myself used to be a, a U.S. Department of Justice civil rights lawyer before I was a federal prosecutor. And so I know that the federal part of the investigation will often take longer than the state part of the investigation. So I suspect that our office will render a decision um, well before the, uh, the federal authorities uh, make their decisions.
1: Often considered the backstop and, and looking to see, um, but continuously proactive. I, when we met, Steve, I knew we'd meet again one day, but I couldn't have imagined <laughs> to be under these circumstances. Thank you for joining. Yeah. Thank you, Laura. I want to bring in CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams and former FBI executive assistant director for Intelligence Joshua School. It's a very difficult case to think about this happening, the idea of the allegations of a person being beaten for three minutes following a traffic stop for purportedly reckless driving. We've learned from the family um, during their watching of the video, one of his last words were to call out to his mother. Apparently, he was 80 to 100 yards away from his home. Um, When we hear about this and what's happening right now, I wonder, I'll begin with you, um, Joshua, on this. Do you expect to see charging decisions, given the firings that were almost immediate?
13: I do expect to see charges coming pretty quickly on the state side, as the district attorney had said. There are two parallel investigations going on right now, and both in collaboration. You have the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, um, which the district attorney called in to keep impartiality over this investigation, and then a parallel civil rights investigation being conducted by the Federal Bureau of Investigation in conjunction with the U.S. Attorney's Office.
1: On that note, do you think that there will be charges here, Elliot? And the idea, I mean, when we and we've all spoken about the Derek Chauvin trial and um, and the way that we all collectively, I think, thought as a society, man, policing might be changed forever in the sense of those who are watching something happen and the duty to render aid. Remember, there was the, the powerful closing arguments to talk about the duty of care owed, you know, repeated time and time again. The fact that they were fired and violated policies for use of force, duty to render aid, and duty to intervene, what does that tell you?
8: Well, duty to render aid and duty to intervene, those are buzzwords for federal civil rights charges. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we saw those, frankly, in, in the Chauvin case, where a number of the individuals uh, who were... Uh, At the scene, it was their failure to render aid that actually triggered the the federal civil rights statute. Now, the family is asking for murder in the first degree, which would be an intentional premeditated killing. That's going to be pretty hard to get here, I think. Um, But there's any number of... Even though
1: premeditation can form in an instant. Sure,
8: certainly. But I think they're... um, you know that that's the highest, part, and it's a capital charge in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. That might be tough uh, to establish, but but there's any number of secondary murder, manslaughter, all sorts of assault charges, and so on. Most importantly, though, yeah, you know, to step back, it is important to wait until the video's out, uh, and to you know, we are evaluating a very painful, very um, gruesome, almost circumstance, but, but but not having seen it, yeah. um, and we're just not certain. Now, look, like you said, Laura, the fact that the police department has stepped in and found that. Uh, you know that the conduct so far exceeded the standards of that department is itself telling, but none of us have actually seen what played out.
1: A good point, and one needs to be echoed again. The idea that we have not seen this video. We um, And his point, you heard him, was the idea of not wanting to show it because he didn't want anyone's testimony to conform to that. Um, and the idea of, of what this is like. And, and a question for you is, you know, what happens if this video is different than it is being discussed? If it's either... I mean, I can't imagine not as bad, but even more horrific. How does that shape the way that the culture of policing or the approach to this investigation might change?
13: I don't know that it changes the course of the investigation. I think we can anticipate that this video is going to be very graphic. Uh, clearly, the leadership of the Memphis Police Department viewed that very quickly and made a very, and the chief made a very prompt decision to remove those officers, which which. They have the power to do. That's the first course of action. Second was to contact the district attorney, bring in the uh, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, and then, the par- and then the parallel civil rights investigation. I can't see a, right now, based on everything we've heard, as it being a minimalist video. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to be very graphic. I think it's going to be disturbing. Um, but I will say this, in, in dialogue with many in the major city chiefs, they are, the major city chiefs are trying to reform policing. Yeah. They, they're, they're, they're trying hard. And some of this, as the district attorney said, they have a new police chief there, and they're about 18 months. This is going to be something that they're going to have to change culture. And, and, and I know that the leadership in the law enforcement community is looking at this incident as horrifically as all the citizens in the United States.
1: That's a great point that you've raised. And just the idea of, um, we're talking about the, the culture of law enforcement, but I think the point you are um, intimating as well is the idea of, what this does to have this be the perception of law enforcement more broadly. What this does not only to morale, what this does to policing, what this does to the perception in communities of feelings of safety by those who are first responders. And we've got a long way to go as well in this investigation. Thank you, gentlemen. Nice to see you both. We'll be right back. The message coming through loud and clear in the Senate today, don't mess with Taylor Swift fans, a top executive from Live Nation Entertainment, which owns Ticketmaster, in the Senate Judiciary Committee hot seat over the company's disastrous handling of ticket sales back in November for Swift's upcoming tour. Now, millions of her fans, millions, were shut out, angering the pop star, not to mention the millions of fans. What does all this have to do with the Senate? Well, CNN's Jason Carroll explains.
5: We apologize to the fans. We apologize to Ms. Swift. We need to do better, and we will do better. Will
14: an apology be enough to satisfy music fans looking for retribution and lawmakers looking for answers? You can't have too much consolidation, something that unfortunately for this country, as an uh, ode to Taylor Swift, I will say, we know all too well. Ticketmaster's parent company, Live Nation Entertainment's president and CFO, Joe told, grilled for hours by lawmakers trying to determine if the company's influence over the concert and events industry is essentially a monopoly. One that critics say was created in 2010 when Ticketmaster and Live Nation merged. We hear people say that
5: ticketing markets are less competitive today than they were at the time of the Live Nation Ticketmaster merger. That's simply not true.
14: Throughout the day, senators on both sides of the aisle challenge that notion. I want to congratulate and thank you for an absolutely stunning achievement. You have brought together Republicans and Democrats in an absolutely unified cause. Senator Richard Blumenthal, one of several senators who borrowed lyrics from Swift to make a point. May I suggest respectfully that Ticketmaster ought to look in the mirror and say... I'm the problem, it's me. Oh. Today's hearing, part of the fallout after the fiasco surrounding Ticketmaster's handling of pre-sale tickets to Swift's upcoming tour. It was bungled so badly last November it left scores of frustrated fans faced with technical issues such as canceled tickets, a crashing site, and an artist beside herself over what people endured to get her tickets. Swift tweeted, it really pisses me off that a lot of them feel like they went through several bear attacks to get them. Critics testified the swift fallout is the result of anti-competitive conduct from a company with too much power. I'm getting sick of the in-between. Singer Clyde Lawrence, a member of Lawrence the Band, testified about the problem of added ticket
12: fees. Most of the issues we face stem from the fact that Live Nation Ticketmaster often acts as three things at the same time. The promoter, the venue, and the ticketing company.
14: Lawrence penned an op ed in the New York Times following the Swift incident about what he called Live Nation's outside influence on live music. His 2021 song titled False Alarms included this lyric Live Nation's a monopoly. He told the Senate Judiciary Committee performers should see a bigger share of merchandise sales and caps on fees that affect both artists and consumers.
11: I think it's time to teach some lessons.
14: While some industry insiders question how much one hearing is likely to change things, others say the SWIFT movement has already had an impact. Jason
1: Carroll, CNN,
14: New York. Well,
1: up next, believe it or not, M&Ms are at the center of a new battle in the culture wars. Yes, I said M&Ms. We'll explain what's going on next also ahead the late night comedy shows poking fun at congressman jordan santos and his lies we'll have well this impersonator on with us soon
11: i have to get back to work to my constituents okay now wait a minute be careful that looks very dangerous no 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 it's okay i am Batman.
1: Well, have you heard about the latest thing that's now getting swept up in the culture wars? For all you chocolate fans out there, it's M&Ms announcing it's replacing its spokes candies with comedian and actress Maya Rudolph. In a statement posted on Twitter, the candy brand sang in part, "Quote: In the last year, we've made some changes to our beloved spokes candies. We weren't sure if anyone would even notice, and we definitely didn't think it would break the internet." Therefore we have decided to take an indefinite pause from the Spokes Candies. The chief marketing officer for Mars Wrigley North America telling CNN a statement that the partnership with Maya Rudolph has been in the works for a while. They also went on to say, "Quote, there are lots of stories out there, but let me say conclusively that this decision isn't a reaction to two, but rather is in support of our M&M's brand. The original colorful cast of M&M's Spokes Candies are at present pursuing (laughs) other personal passions. I couldn't get the, to the entire thing with the straight face. But it was actually what's going on right now. And this is really what's happening. And I want to bring in others to help with me here. And that's Karen Finney and Ramesh Banuru. Also, um, Levick founder and CEO Richard Levick is also joining. May begin with you over there? Because, Richard, you say this whole thing, the discussion about M&Ms and what they're wearing or what the colors they're choosing and the idea that people are attacking these spokes candies. Um, as somehow a proxy for larger culture wars. You say it's absurd. But but the idea of of pulling this back the spokes candies was actually the right move. Do you agree?
5: Well, first of all, I want to thank you, you know, for having me on such an important topic today. You know, we're not gonna be talking about <laughs> Russian tanks, obviously. Instead, we're gonna be talking about those poor candies. And I <sighs> You know, the the shoes that they were wearing are no longer wearing. I think if you're asking the question, how has Mars handled this brilliantly? I mean, think about this for a moment. When is this happening? Just weeks before the Super Bowl. And suddenly it's the Apple 1984 advertisement all over again. Everyone's going to be watching what, uh, what Mars does with their advertisements. The other thing I think that Mars really understands brilliantly so is that their brand isn't chocolate. Their brand is joy, and they responded to this sort of tongue-in-cheek, the Dear John letter you referred to, some of the cute takeaway lines. They didn't go other than the, for that particular specific comment on Twitter. They didn't. They weren't responsive. They didn't dive in foolishly and try and make this a serious issue. And instead, they stuck with their brand.
1: I mean, this, on that point, you are a brand expert and in, in marketing as well on these on these areas. I do wonder, in terms of how this is being talked about. I mean. Is this something that, frankly, translates into people rallying around financially and, and sort of a strategic
5: decision? No. I, you know, in fact, it, what's really interesting here is that you're seeing as part of the culture war, you see on the left all the virtue signaling. And on the right, there's all this, uh, this shaming and, the, and going on uh, the attack. It's the outrage machine. And, you know, and Mars is very smart not to get involved in the political issue there's no there's no winning there and for the right wing that's going after going after mars right now the GOP doesn't have a platform, and so what they do is they keep feeding this outrage machine in the hope that people will get angry at companies, but it doesn't go anywhere. And if you look, you know, it's been uh, it's gas stoves now, it's burgers, it's Nike, it's uh, it's been Apple, Starbucks, but you don't see any fi- negative financial ramifications. So I think that from other companies' points of view, watching what Mars does and how it lives uh, its brand is really something uh, critical to watch. And I think if you looked at other companies, imagine Elon Musk trying to respond as jovially and successfully mm. as Mars has done here.
1: Well, you know, for those of you out there, I want to turn to our panel who's on set as well. For those of you out there who are either A, Googling about M&Ms right now, or you're salivating because there's chocolate on your screen and you're wondering why we're not talking more about the joy it brings. Let me bring in Karen and Ramesh here because simple changes were made, okay? Okay. You're talking about the green M&M's go-go boots became sneakers. First of all, I get it. I mean, heels hurt the, the whole art system. Then you've got the idea of a purple M&M in honor of International Women's Day. The fact that this sent shockwaves, that these folks candies are now being looked at as problematic because of, well, the go-go boots didn't bring them joy. I don't know why I did Jack Nicholson impression just now. But the fact that happened, Karen, what does that mean to you that this is where we are?
9: Well, by the way, post-pandemic, lots of women I know aren't wearing heels anymore. They're wearing sneakers or tennis shoes. So that's just just real. That's in the culture.
1: Vice President (laughs) Harris in the cover of Vogue in her coveted Converse All-Stars. Absolutely.
9: Look, I mean, you gotta really scrape the bottom of the barrel to be going after candy for the outrage machine. I mean, that's it's really deep. I mean, purple happens to be my favorite color, so it's hard for me to. I was very happy with the news of purple, but it is it's it's ridiculous, and in some ways, it shows how ridiculous this right wing outrage machine actually can be. On the other hand, I agree with Richard as a branding person myself. It's brilliant. Your brand is joy. Stay focused on your brand. And it is a brilliant campaign two weeks before
10: the Super Bowl. Well,
1: that's why you wore the purple tie, right, Ramesh, in honor of this purple M&M?
10: Well, um, I'm afraid I have to confess I don't know anything about the purple M&M. <laughs> I am basically unfamiliar with this controversy and glad to be and and kind of actively resent uh, being informed of its existence. I will just say <laughs> that I don't really like the idea of M&M having feet at all, uh, let alone really whatever they d- were wearing on their feet. Um, but I, I have to uh, assume that the people who are affecting outrage are also doing it as part of a brand strategy and are perhaps not actually um, consumed with with rage and and psychosocial anxiety about uh, their candy.
1: I'm going to get you a T-shirt that says I actively resent information. And that's going <laughs> what we're going to wear next time you're on this show. But I have to tell you, I, I, I love the fact that I never thought about Karen. Wait, our love of M&M's. Are we eating people? No, we're
9: eating candy. Exactly. Stop.
1: Exactly. Just set you up and knocked it down. Way to go. Thank you so much. Up next, everyone, the wild conspiracy theories that have popped up following Damar Hamlin's on field collapse. And yes, there are conspiracies. Well, Buffalo Bills quarterback Josh Allen is shooting down conspiracy theories about his teammate, DeMar Hamlin. First, people falsely claimed that his cardiac arrest was caused by the COVID vaccine. And now conspiracy theorists are calling or claiming Hamlin wasn't actually at the game on Sunday. And what we saw on video was a body double. Here's what Josh Allen said on the podcast, Kyle Brant's basement.
3: There's people
11: with like really legitimate heavy followings who are saying the fix is in, um, that was not DeMar. His face was covered, he had sunglasses, he had a hat. When they went to him on CBS, you couldn't see him and that there's this next level conspiracy that that was actually not DeMar Hamlin at the game. They're saying it. One, that's, that's DeMar's swag. That's what he like. he likes wearing that.
14: Um, two, he was in the locker room with us pregame. So yes, that was DeMar. There's absolutely <laughs> zero chance. There's absolutely zero chance. That's okay, DeMar Hamlin. That's our guy. That's uh, our brother. He was with us pre-game, post-game. He was up in the suite with his family, his little brother 100%. So, people need to stop. I got it. Stop this.
1: Karen Fiddy and Ramesh Panuru are back and CNN <laughs> Sports analyst Christine Brennan joins the conversation as well. I mean, Christine, you and I were there that night talking about what was going on and watching everything unfold. I mean, really, the world stopped watching and top and watched what was happening on Monday night football just three weeks ago, which is shocking to think if that's where we are.
7: But why are conspiracy theorists, do you think, trying to exploit this opportunity? I have what no is idea. it? It's horrifying. I mean, this young man almost died. And to think that the fact that he's in a football stadium, he's alive he's okay or is getting better, he's in a football stadium cheering on his team in the middle of a snowstorm, by the way, that somehow this becomes fodder, Laura, for these people. It is, it is horrendous. It's awful. I kind of hate we're even talking about it, but of course we have to talk about it because it's an issue in our society. Think of the things we could be doing, not talking about this, all these people who have to debunk these theories. It's atrocious. And to prey on this particular man arguably the biggest story of the year so far in terms of not politics but in terms of you know culture and our society and to turn this into someone's ploy to get more followers their their lives aren't aren't great. They want to make people feel miserable. I don't know. Shame, shame, shame on all of them. I mean, the brainpower being expended to use and and theorize
1: as opposed to what could be towards solutions around preventing a number of things. And also we see here, I mean, Karen, there's a new conspiracy that's spreading on Twitter. You've probably all seen this. Um, It is um, a hashtag is died suddenly. That's the hashtag which is talking about the tragic deaths that we've seen, the sudden tragic deaths. And they are falsely claiming that COVID vaccines are responsible. And it happened when Lisa Marie Presley died. Mm -hmm. It happened to the sports journalist, Grant Wall, who, Ramesh, I know you knew personally as well. Um, Why do you think this is happening?
9: Because in our culture, we have not said, not just shame on you, but we're actually going to hold you accountable the way Frankly, the parents, um, the, um, the par- not Parkland, the Sandy sh- Hook, the Sandy Hook sh- shooting held Alex Jones accountable and said, you will not do this. Ooh. You will not have people chasing me down on the street, screaming at me that my child didn't die. Right. I mean, we have to take that kind of principled stand to say this is not acceptable. There are hundreds of thousands of Americans who have died from covid because of conspiracy theories, because they were afraid of vaccines, because they wouldn't wear a mask. And it is a tragedy. And I think we have to recognize that it's not just a phenomenon on social media. This is disgusting, and it's not going to stop if we don't stand up and say, we're not going to tolerate this. And we're going to go after the people who are perpetrating these conspiracy theories. In
1: fact, Christine, I mean, Grant Wall's wife, um, Dr. Celine Grounder, had to come out and try to debunk I mean, in the midst of the grief, debunk something like this?
7: Well, she did. In fact, as she said, they hurried the autopsy. They got his remains back as quickly as they could. The whole thing is so heartbreaking from Qatar. And she did an autopsy. Of course, she's a doctor and an infectious disease specialist and one of the great, Karen, to your point, one of the great people over the last three years in this country on COVID. They got the autopsy done as quickly as possible so she could put out there how he died. Mm that it had nothing to do with the vaccine, nothing to do with COVID. And I'm sure it infuriates you as well, knowing them so well. But thank goodness for her to have the knowledge to get that done as quickly as possible.
10: And it's infuriating also because it's not just uh, the bad actors who are perpetrating this. It's all of these gullible people Ooh. who are buying it and who start saying, well, there are an awful lot of people dying suddenly. And people die young. People die suddenly all the time. You're just noticing it now. What you're basically saying is, I sure have noticed a lot of people dying suddenly since I started noticing it. And there was a movie, by the way. Part it's called Died Suddenly. There's a um, But
1: it's pushing the conspiracy theory in part. It's got like millions and millions of views. So the idea of... Um, People watching, viewing it, receiving the information, and then believing that this is entitling people to then do what they're doing and say what they say. It's an ongoing conversation we all have to pay attention to. Up next, everyone, impersonators on late night fun. They're poking fun at Congressman George Santos and his serial lying.
11: Since you brought up your family, you claimed your now deceased mother was in the World Trade Center on 9-11 and died from that. They looked into it. Turned out her paperwork said she was in Brazil at the time. That is a complete lie. She was in
15: the Twin Towers getting a Brazilian. Okay. (laughs)
1: Well, impersonators are coming out of the woodwork, showing up on the late night comedy shows, poking fun at one Republican congressman, George Santos, and, of course, his serial lying. And as the old saying goes, well, the jokes practically write themselves. Take a look.
0: Congressman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Stephen. It's an honor to be back on your show. This is actually your first time here.
8: (laughs) Not according to my IMDb. It says, uh, I've been a guest
10: five times,
14: and I was also your band leader, John Batiste. I'm
12: just in town to pick up my Nobel Peace Prize. Congratulations. Yeah, perform a couple nights at Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. I didn't know you were playing MSG. Yes, yes, I'll be singing all my hit songs, Piano Man, Hey Jude, Happy Birthday.
11: Uh, you were just named to the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. Does that make sense to you? Well, yeah, yeah, because I was the
15: first openly gay Jewish Republican Latino to walk on the moon. Do you have a problem? With-
1: <laughs> well, that actor in the Jimmy Kimmel sketch is Nelson Franklin. And guess what? He joins me now. It's good to see you. I have to say, um, people are already talking about, you know, who's going to play him in a movie. And your name came up time and time again. Uh, what's, it, what's it like having the, well, apparently the face of one controversial congressman these days.
15: Uh, It's been a crazy thing, Laura. Thank you for having me, by the way. Uh, You know, I I got off Twitter in early 2017, uh, just sort of, you know, during the early Trump presidency for my own mental health. And so I sort of missed a lot of the sort of viral tweets that were happening about me looking like this guy or whatever. But my friends and family sort of forwarded me the highlights. It's weird. It's very weird. That's the only word I can use to describe that.
1: I mean, it's it's. I can imagine what that's like, and good for you for trying to get off. And they sucked you back in. That's how Twitter works. You cannot escape it. You can't leave the family, everyone. Um, but let's talk about your bit on Kimmel because, frankly, there's a lot of source material to choose from um, and, and think about it. I wonder if it makes it easier for you to, to approach it and think about, look, I'm going to go way over the top or I'm just going to play this straight because there's enough there.
9: Yeah,
15: Look, I was pretty lucky I landed with Kimmel there uh, because they gave me such a like a wonderful sort of uh, script. I had a huge amount of things to do. I was walking all around the hallways of Congress. I had so much business, and, and I love that because it, 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 I'm too busy to think about how nervous I am to be on a late night show for the first time. But, um, you know, the source for this bit was just all those crazy footage of him. Walking down hallways, evading reporters, and then like doubling back and slipping. It's like, it's like you said, you you can't write this stuff, it's unbelievable. So, I, I was just trying to sort of duplicate the uh, the sort of frantic rambling. It's like this is what he would have said if he had opened his mouth during any of those times.
1: And by the way, I should tell you, he has tweeted about this. He has watched it all. And I'm going to read with you what he had to say is, I have now been enshrined in late night TV history with all these impersonations, but they are all terrible so far. John Lovitz is supposed to be one of the greatest comedians of all time. And that was embarrassing for him, not me. These comedians need to step their game up. Now, first of all, he didn't out talk about you in that tweet, but he wants you to step <laughs> your game up. That's quite a challenge given what is ahead. Oh and for a man who's been in Veep, this feels a lot like a satire, yet it's real life.
15: Yeah, you know, this is something that uh, was very troublesome to the Veep writing staff in the later seasons. <laughs> they would have to change their scripts because the stuff they were thought was so crazy would actually happen In real life, uh, they were getting outdone by uh, how crazy reality was. Look, it's fine. that I'm just disappointed he wasn't more excited. I'm just going to say if I was George Santos, if that was really his name, and I was in his shoes and people were uh, parroting me on TV and stuff, I would be so delighted by that. It's uh, such a moment in time. But, of course, he's got to stick to his guns and say everything's terrible because otherwise you wouldn't be a, a GOP candidate.
1: Oh no! I don't know that he's not delighted by this. I mean, he was asking for you to <laughs> not telling you to stop. It wasn't a shutdown. It was stepped your game up. And by the way,
15: we make it funnier. You,
1: you make it make. Well, there's this scene that you played on Kimmel as well yesterday or the other day about this. You you stepped your game up. Here he is. You or him?
11: You've been accused of lying about a lot of things. <laughs> Just name. Ten. Okay, well, how about the pyramid scheme in Florida you deny having any knowledge of? What do you say about whoa, whoa, that? Whoa, 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 whoa,
15: whoa, Pyramid scheme is an offensive term. Okay, my people actually built the pyramids when they were slaves. Uh, but and- wait,
11: wait, you also claim nope, to be nope. Jewish, but there seems to be no evidence that you're Jewish. Yes, there seems to be no evidence at all. Wait a minute. That you're...
1: Yeah. That's funny. Uh, it's funny. That's funny. Why are you? These are good writers
15: on Kim. I'm well, <laughs> uh, just looking at myself on TV. It's hard to watch sometimes. You know how it goes. <laughs>
1: no actually i like looking at myself on tv i don't know i would tell you Nathan, about that very fra- no and i'll honestly though first of all you should know to take credit for the entire bit don't cre- don't credit the writers come on kimball who it's all about you in this moment here but i have to ask you are you planning on reprising this particular role because it's funny Wait a minute. Be
15: careful. i would love to yeah, i had such a wonderful time working there with those guys it was it was a really good time i'm not sure if it's going to happen but uh you know this guy can't stop cranking out the material so there might have to be a, a a recurring bit there
1: something tells me that there's still more to the story of all these things i <laughs> wonder there are a number of impersonators now even across the late night shows i wonder if you all are in touch now and trying to outdo one another
15: <laughs> no 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 i, I don't know john Lovis. is i I'm, I'm a big fan of of john and of harvey i'm a big what we do in the shadows fan and uh and John Lovitz even, he worked a, a critic line into his uh, portrayal of George Santos, so props to him. Like These guys are legends, and if I ever get to meet them, I'll consider myself lucky, you know?
1: Well, I tell you, I don't think it's uh, the end of the story, the end of the bit, there'll be more <laughs> yeah. to come. It's nice to meet you, I see you're very humble, but it, the wa- watching you walk through the halls and <laughs> even the wallet moment, I mean, I couldn't help but laugh. Thank you so much.
15: Hey, thank you so much for having me.